Hello, my name is Connor Geerty. I'm a professor of human rights law here at LSE, and I am delighted to be the chair, as your screen is showing you, of this event. It's going to last one hour. It's being recorded. And for those of you who are still doing Twitter, not banned like the former president of the United States, it's hashtag LSE voice. And obviously, I'm going to say who you already know is going to be talking in a moment, but I'm going to encourage you from the moment that our speaker speaks, starts to speak, think about questions. We're going to have a good bit of time for questions. You can send them through on the Q&A facility here on Zoom. And so we'll try and get a conversation going. I think they'll have to be mediated through me. But nevertheless, we can keep that part of the event going in a lively an interesting way. Now, our speaker. Well, I was on a management thing where we were supposed to meet people from LSE and talk about management. I can't remember much. I can't remember anything except being spoken to by Constant for a day on her particular interest and her experiences in management and in what is this uh, book, the book she's going to speak to now, Making Your Voice Heard about leadership presence, about influence in the workplace. Uh, Conson is a professorial lecturer in management here at LSE. She's a fascinating speaker. Uh, I've read the book. I thought it was compelling. And I am delighted to have this opportunity to invite Conson to uh, make a presentation which will have slides and which will hopefully generate a discussion at the end of it. Conson, welcome to online LSC. Welcome to this remote world. And over to you. Thank you, Connor. So, um, hi, everyone. I think the exciting thing about having an online event is that a lot of people can attend, and you can attend from all over the world. Um, the online event is in many ways more democratic as well, because when you type a question into the Q&A, you can upvote other people's questions. And so the questions that get asked first are the ones that the most people want to get asked. So um, definitely put your questions in the Q&A. I've got about a 20 minute presentation. And then after that, um, I will we'll try to get to as many questions as possible. So I think the first thing I want to say about this book is, I mean, it's exciting because it's my first book. It's really exciting because I've actually got the physical copy. It arrived at my house yesterday. I finished writing this book a year ago, a year ago. So I've been going through it going, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot I wrote that. Um, but so it's not a book about my research. I just want to be clear on this. I haven't done enough original research for a whole book. And even if I had, that's not the type of book I wanted to write. It's actually a how-to book. It, it actually says on the back of the book, personal development. So it's a personal development book. Um, but it's an evidence-based personal development book. Because like a good academic, I source everything. So if I'm going to give you an, a recommendation, there's a citation for that. There's a piece of research that supports that. So I'm bringing together research from psychology, sociology, behavioral economics, anthropology, any discipline that has useful material for this topic. It's also, I should say, a very personal book because this is, I'm basically teaching readers a, a skill that I never had. 
So I'll, I'll tell you a story. When I was younger, like I was really shy and painfully lacking in self-confidence. When I was about 14, I remember being in a hotel with my parents. We were on holiday. And um, my mother said to me, we were in the hotel room, and my mother said, can you go downstairs and ask the front desk for a newspaper? Because I was the oldest. And I was like, what? You, you, you want me to what? go downstairs and talk to a stranger and, and ask for something. Like I was terrified. I still remember now how scared I was. That's how bad it was. So now I'm in my fifties. I've clearly gained um, a bit more confidence and a bit more voice. And so this book is to help other people learn what I was, what I have spent my whole life learning. Hopefully it'll help you learn it before you're in your fifties. So what I'm going to do in the next 20 minutes is I'll give you a little overview of what's in the book, and then I will teach you some of the concepts from the book and read you a little excerpt. Okay, so let me share my slides. Okay, so, so this book is about how to influence those who have more power than you. Um, and so there are three main sections in the book. There's a fourth section as well that kind of wraps things up. But the three main sections are the first one, I call it the face you show the world, which is about nonverbal communication. It's literally the face you show the world, the body language, all of these things, um, influence tactics. The second section is the one that's really close to my heart because this, you know, we think that if we send people to presentation skills training, that's gonna solve the problem. Like you go to a few presentation skills training, suddenly you're going to be influential. That's not true because you need to have that inner confidence. You need to overcome um, that lack of self-confidence, the fears, you need to have some resilience and you need to overcome this voice in your head that can really undermine you. So that's what I'm gonna focus on in today's lecture is our um, bits from that part of the book. And then the third part of the book is the social context, which is essentially, um, it's about the, the context in which we find ourselves. And so there's one chapter on gender and gender bias, and then another chapter on cultural differences. Um, and gender is very cultural. So the two chapters are very much related, but I also talk about how to overcome these challenges. Um, and a few special features in the book. So because it's a personal development book, uh, there are lots of tips. So every few pages, there's like a little tip in bold and there are try this boxes. So it's a box of like a little exercise that you can try. And that's what I'll read out to you um, at the end. So you get a taste for what that's like. And I have lots of little anecdotes um, to bring this to life, uh, anecdotes about fictitious people who are struggling with influence. And then I, I tell you about how I would, what I would advise those people to do. Okay, so starting with the concepts from the book, one of the basic concepts is that we need to have both power and influence. Okay, so what's the difference? I use the parable of the wind and the sun to, to illustrate this difference. And the parable of the north wind and the sun goes like this. One day, the wind and the sun were arguing about who was more powerful, and they couldn't agree. And so finally, the sun said, Let's have a contest. You see that guy down there with his coat on? Whichever one of us can get him to take off his coat, that's the more powerful one. And the wind was like, okay. So the sun said, you go first. And so the wind blew and blew and blew as hard as possible. And the guy just pulled his coat around himself even tighter. 
finally it was a sun's turn. So the sun said, so the sun basically got warmer and warmer and warmer. And eventually the guy took his coat off. So this parable is usually used to illustrate the difference between hard power and soft power, hard tactics, you know, meaning force and soft tactics like persuasion. I use it to illustrate the difference between power and influence because power to me is that potential. So both the sun and the wind have the potential to influence, but influence is external. It's observable. So to influence that guy, you could see if you influenced him because he took his coat off. So influence is some kind of change in behavior or attitude in someone else. So power is the potential to create that influence, but influence is actually being, you know, the external stuff. So this combination of the internal power, the, the inner self, the confidence, the reputation, all of these things, and the external strategies like the nonverbal communication and the tools and all of that, the face you show the world. That's what I see uh, as the, um, the core of influence. It's the combination of the two. We focus a lot on these external strategies. We don't focus enough on the internal power. Okay, so let me talk a little bit about some of the concepts behind the internal power. So one of these is this French and Raven, the bases of power. So five sources of power here. Um, and what French and Raven are basically saying is that there, there are five ways, there are five sources from which we can derive power. Um, three of these are not that interesting for what I'm looking at here, for a book on how to influence upward. Because if you're trying to influence, and I call it upward influence because we're influencing up the hierarchy. We're influencing people who have more power than we do. So if you're trying to influence upward, so you, you know, the person isn't necessarily going to feel obligated to listen to you. So here you can see the language that we use here when we talk about influence, powered influence. There's a target and there's an agent. The target is like the guy with his coat on. The agent is you or the sun or the wind, you know, whoever's trying to create that influence. So if the target has more power than you, they're not gonna feel obligated to do what you say. You won't necessarily have access to rewards or punishments that they want or that they fear. So what's a lot more interesting for upward influence are these two bases of power, expert and referent power. So expert power comes from, it can come from your past experience, it can come from your CV, it can come from excelling at your job you're known as an expert in something. And the thing about expert power is it has a halo effect. So you could be known as an expert in topic A, and eventually people are like, wow, you know, she's really smart. Let's ask her about topic B. Because, you know, even though you know nothing about topic B, your, your reputation as an expert kind of makes people think that you, you're worth listening to. Referent power is different. So French and Raven, when they use the word referent, they, they're thinking of the referent as like a role model. So referent power is there's someone that you kind of put on a pedestal, you see them as a role model, you want to be like them, you know, like the influencers. If we're using this for upward influence, like your boss isn't necessarily going to see you as a role model. They might see you as a role model for other people on the team, but not for themselves. 
what referent power really means in that context is about a good relationship. So if you have a really good relationship with your boss, if your boss really relies on you um, because, I don't know, whatever it is that they value, you are honest, you have integrity, you're dependable, you're cooperative, whatever it is. So if your boss really relies on you and you have that good relationship, when you say something, like when you suggest something, because of that good relationship, the boss is more likely to pay attention and to consider it. That's the idea behind referent power. So both of these are bases of power that anyone can um, develop, no matter where you are in the hierarchy. And that's why I find these two very interesting. It's also, I think, especially important for people who are not, um, who are not standard um, leaders, I guess, you know, for women, for minorities, for people who are not normally perceived as leaders. Um, and I say this because there's this one study that looked at CEOs, female CEOs and male CEOs over, I think it was a period of about 20 years. Um, and there were hundreds of CEOs that they looked at. And what they found was the most successful female CEOs had been working inside the same company for at least 10 years. The most successful male CEOs, it actually didn't matter. They, there was no real difference between whether they were from inside the company or outside the company. There was actually a slight advantage for bringing in a male CEO from outside the company. And the researchers hypothesized that that might have been because um, the bringing in an outsider breaks up the internal politics a little bit. But for the woman, for the female CEO, and this has a lot to do with gender and leadership and the challenges for women um, being perceived as leaders. To be a successful CEO, she had to have been inside the firm for at least 10 years. And I think it, part of it is because it took her that long to build the expert and the referent power, to build those good relationships, to build the reputation so that people were willing to listen to her. Okay, so that's basis of power. Let me also share with you the voices inside your head. Um, so this is, we have voices inside our head. Yes, even when we're completely sane, we have voices inside our head that sometimes they help us, but oftentimes they don't. Sometimes they undermine us. And so I'm gonna talk about two of them here. One, we call imposter syndrome. I think a lot of you have heard of this. And it's basically a voice that says, I don't deserve to be here. So imposter syndrome happens when you're successful. If you're not successful, you don't really struggle with imposter syndrome. But once when you're successful, the thing about imposter syndrome is it basically says, I don't deserve this. Like it, I, I was just lucky, or maybe they made a mistake or something like that, or they're gonna find out any second now that I shouldn't have been given this promotion, that kind of thing. So that's imposter syndrome. Um, it's associated with anxiety. It's often associated with low self-esteem. The other one here, that I'm gonna talk about is stereotype threat. And stereotype threat is negative stereotypes associated with an aspect of your identity. It, the research has mostly looked at women and minorities and the negative stereotypes that are associated with them. For example, for women, women are worse than men at maths or women are worse than men at negotiations, that sort of thing. Now, stereotype threat doesn't always happen. It actually gets triggered when the task is particularly difficult. 
So if the task is not that hard, you don't have to worry about it. But it's when the task is difficult that you start going, why am I struggling so much? Why? Oh, it must be because I'm a woman and women are bad at maths. Okay, so a couple of things here. First of all, with imposter syndrome, what they found is it can really help to talk to other imposters. Because once you talk to other people who feel like they're imposters, you realize how silly that is. It's like, wait, you've got this really, um, you're a really senior person at your organization. Why do you think you don't deserve to be there? It also helps to keep a smile file. This was um, one of my colleagues from many years ago suggested this to me. So I, I literally do keep a folder of positive feedback. And I don't mean the meaningless, like, oh, great job. That, that's meaningless. Okay. Positive feedback where you actually feel like you had an impact on someone, where someone says to you, hey, this was really helpful because I did this as a result of what you said or something like that. So I keep a folder of those um, of that type of feedback to look at when I'm feeling a bit uncertain, when I'm, when I'm feeling hit by imposter syndrome that, um, you know, so those, those are some tips to help with imposter syndrome. With stereotype threat, first of all, because it only happens when a task is particularly difficult, try to practice those difficult tasks in a safe environment so you're not so overwhelmed by them. But secondly, remember that you have multiple identities. So, we have multiple identities and we can use that to our advantage. There's a, there was this interesting study that looked at, um, so in the United States, there's a stereotype that women are bad at maths, but there's another stereotype that Chinese people are good at maths. So what these researchers did was they got Chinese American female students and they randomly assigned them to three conditions. In one condition, they reminded them of their gender identity. In another condition, they reminded them of their ethnic identity. And in the third condition, it was the control condition. They didn't remind them of any part of their identity. And they gave them a really difficult math test. So the results of this, remember these were randomly assigned to these three conditions. The group that did worst on the math test, not surprisingly, were the ones who were reminded of their gender identity. The women reminded that they were women. The next best group was the control group because the group that did the best were the ones who were reminded of their ethnic identity. So this is, I mean, you have to have, this doesn't work. They, they did this again in Canada and it didn't work because apparently in Canada, they don't have that stereotype that Chinese people are good at maths um, or at least not among the people that they, that they researched. But so you have to have the stereotypes there in order to use it um, in that way. But the, the thing that this really should remind you of is that we have multiple identities. So I'm female, I'm Chinese, but I'm also a Harvard graduate. I'm also a professor. Um, I'm also a mother. I'm, you know, we have multiple identities. So one of the ways of dealing with stereotype threat is to remind yourself of one of those other identities that could be more helpful. And one last point about the voice in your head is Think about what that voice in your head is doing and try to replace it with something positive. So for example, if you have to do an online presentation and the voice in your head is saying, oh, I'm terrible, I'm terrible at these online presentations. I'm really bad. Do you remember last time I failed? And so it, it's, 
you know, you've got this fear and nervousness and this really negative voice. Replace it with a positive voice, but you also remember there's an emotion associated with this. So you also have to replace it with a positive emotion. And so one thing that helps me when I'm feeling really nervous about things is to think about the audience, to think about what I bring. So rather than I'm terrible at online presentations, I would replace it with something like, I have something really important to share with the audience. I have something that will help the audience. And so you replace it with this feeling of caring or urgency or something like that. Okay, so that's the voice inside your head. And the last concept I'm gonna share with you is this idea of the circle of influence and the circle of concern. So I know I'm supposed to be promoting my own book, but if you haven't read Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, please read it. It's still relevant. I read it um, again recently when I was writing my own book and it is still relevant today. So this concept here, I think is especially relevant today. So what Covey says, is we have a very large circle of concern, lots of things that we're worried about that we can't do anything about. The virus, the way the country is being run, the, you know, whatever it is, climate change, all of these things that we can't necessarily do anything about. We have a much smaller circle of influence. And these are the things that we can do something about. You know, we could, um, whatever it is within our lives that we can control. That's the circle of influence. Okay, and what Covey explains, and which I think is important to remind ourselves of, is if we spend too much time in our circle of concern, we can become very fearful, also very bitter and very frustrated because we're focusing on things that we can't control. If we spend more time in our circle of influence, that helps us feel more, um, more powerful, but it also increases the size of that circle of influence. So he gives a great example of this micromanaging boss and the boss's team. And Covey was consultant to the boss. And this team, they hated their boss. I mean, he was a micromanager. He was really annoying. So they, they spent most of their time complaining about the boss. So that's living in your circle of concern, except for one guy. There was one guy on that team who instead of complaining about the boss, he was thinking about what does the boss need from me? So when the boss said, do this, he would think a few steps ahead and, and also do something in addition. And after a few months, the boss actually said to Covey, you know, I was thinking about the people on my team and there's this one guy, he's a bit different. And what ended up happening was the boss treated that guy differently. He was no longer micromanaging that person. He trusted him a bit more. And so this is what I mean. This one guy, you can't change the way the boss is. He wasn't trying to change his boss. All he could do was manage his own attitude and his own behavior. And by doing that, his circle of influence increased because the boss noticed, oh, wait, here's this one guy who's not always complaining about me and who's actually doing something. Okay, so... This is where I'm gonna read a little bit of an excerpt from the book to give you a, a sample of what the try this boxes are like. So this is the try this box for the um, circle of influence. Okay, on a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, creating two columns. Label the first column concerns, that's from your circle of concern, and the second column actions, which is from your circle of influence, the actions you can take. So in the first column, make a list of the things that you're unhappy about or you're worrying about. 
This could include issues from your work life, personal life, or health. This should not be an endless list of complaints, but rather a list of those things that are weighing the most heavily on your mind. In the second column, think of an action you can take for each of your concerns. This does not have to be a solution to the problem, but simply an action that brings you closer to resolving it. For example, if you're upset about a new policy at work, you could speak to someone involved with the policy to find out more about the thinking behind it. If you're worried about your teenager's phone usage, you could schedule a time to talk to them about how to limit that usage. In all cases, try to understand the situation from the other person's point of view before taking further action. Think creatively about actions you can take. Sometimes the best action might be stop worrying about this, which is what I did when I realized that life is too short to count calories. The action that I took for the concern, I need to lose 15 pounds because my suits don't fit, was get my suits altered and stop worrying about my weight. By engaging in this exercise, you may be surprised at how long your list of actions turns out to be, that is how big your circle of influence is and how much control you have over your life. Okay, so that's all I was going to say here. If you wanna hear more from the book, I am speaking next week at the LSE Festival where I'm gonna talk more broadly about presence and influence. Um, and I wanted to finish with this slide, which is, it just gives you a summary of what's in the book, all the chapters. So you can see here, um, the chapter on gender bias, I call men are not from Mars and women are not from Venus because gender is cultural. It's not interplanetary communication, it's cross-cultural communication. Um, and then for those of you who are here in the UK, I know you can get the book from the um, link that um, they'll be sending out the Pages of Hackney link. But those of you who are not in the UK, go to my website and you'll see links to retailers from around the world. So let me just finish with one last thought. So when I turned 50, which was um, five years ago now, I was really stressed out about this. Like I'm in the second half of my life. I'm closer to death than I am from um, being born. So when I turned 50, I was like, I, I wanted a mission for the second half of my life. And so I was looking around, like, what, what is my mission for the second half of my life going to be? And I saw a quote that was attributed to Stephen Covey. And the quote was, be a light, not a judge. Be a light, not a judge. And that's my mission, to light the way, to help others get their voices heard. And I hope this book can be a light for you. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Hunter. Uh, I have all these questions. I'm not going to ask them because we have out there the equivalent of two packed theatres. Another plus, another plus on, on remote, we have over 500 people and we have a lot of questions coming in. And I'm going to pick up one or two. I'm going to start maybe with sort of randomly, not the person who says, Susan has to run off to a medical appointment, not the person who says, and you really do look a whole lot younger than you stay. I'm going to give, <laughs> I'm going to give Susan a miss and thank her and thank her. There's a long question about the NHS we may get to. I'm going to, however, pick up one, we'll say, coming in from, let's say, Tala. <clears throat> I think it links slightly to what I was thinking. Do you think that age and cultural upbringing has an impact on imposter syndrome, uh, being subservient out of respect for elders and authoritative figures. Do you think that's from Tali? Do you think that's 
a fair point and how does one counter it? So I think age and cultural upbringing definitely has an effect on influence and how confident we are and how we try to influence others. I'm not sure about imposter syndrome because imposter syndrome is basically saying you feel you don't deserve the success that you've been given. And I think what's more linked to that is our self-esteem and our, you know, how, how much we feel we deserve these rewards. So I think that's something slightly different, but I do think age and cultural upbringing are relevant. Yeah, I'm going to slip in mine because I can't resist to comes. And this idea of how we are, you have it in one of your slides, attractive personal qualities. Is this born or nurtured? Is the greatest inequality of all that some people look good, have happy homes, grew up being loved, and, you know, their inner self is just exuding confident charm and they get ahead. Can you be constructed or are you born? It is, as with all things, a combination. So there is no simple answer to this, but yes, absolutely. There is inequality that we are born with because some people are born looking more attractive than others. Um, and there is this, um, what do they call it? The, the beauty um, uh, quotient or something like that. You know, you do get advantages for looking better than others, but these, these are not insurmountable barriers. And so that's what I try to address in the book. And I do talk about this in the book about the beauty quotient um, is that you can learn things such as that inner resilience, that inner confidence. You can learn the nonverbal communication. You can learn the way of being in the room and of listening to people and talking to people that can help overcome those barriers. And over time, people go, oh, wow, there's something, there's something about this person. And it doesn't matter what you were born with. Yeah. yeah. Anna, Malcolm has a, has a sort of very practical question. You were talking about imposter syndrome. And I, I'll read it out what Anne says. How do you identify other imposters? Don't people with imposter syndrome hide it as much as possible and keep it to themselves? Isn't that the whole point I'm adding? Yeah. Practically, should you try to find fellow imposters within your work environment or outside the environment? I mean, is it like an AA meeting, a meeting of imposters? How do you do it? It's a practical one, but it's, it's a very interesting one. Yeah, no, it, it is a practical question. And so the, in the research, so what the, what the researchers were able to do was they were basically therapists and they were doing group therapy. And so that's where they came up with that suggestion because it was a group therapy session. Um, what I would do in my normal everyday life is I would talk to my friends. Like I wouldn't talk to people at work. Like you don't want to, you don't want to undermine yourself at work, but I would talk to my friends and I, I bet I could, you know, I can identify probably a few people in my head already that I think, you know, I would talk to them about my own insecurities and they would probably share their insecurities with me. Yeah. So in a way, you reveal vulnerability as a mechanism of communication. Yeah, exactly. Here's from Anouk. I think there'll be a lot of gender interest here, although, of course, the, the book goes much further than gender. But this is from Anouk Holstein. What do you think needs to happen in order for women? Sorry, it's just disappeared. What do you think in order for women? I'm just going to scroll back up because my system is. Is. Uh, giving me new ones all the time. For women to be able to be also successful at a leadership position, coming from an external position, without having to build up expert and reference power over years, 
and proving themselves over and over again. Mm. It's harder for women in some. How can you shortcut? If she's right, it's harder. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you're coming in from an external position, it is still possible. Um, I think what you need is some internal support. So you need some internal senior support, people who are willing to stand up for you, people who are willing to maybe introduce you and say, hey, this is why we brought this person in because they have this kind of expertise. And that having that support can take the place of some of the other, um, you know, bases of power. Right, right. But the basic premise you think is right. She's right. It is harder. Yeah, yeah it is harder. Uh, here's one from uh, Yuk Bo Ting. Uh, could an introvert potentially have more influence than an extrovert if the introvert has strong self-confidence but is more reserved and more willing to listen. Maybe we're querying the assumption there. Maybe the introvert is playing a longer and more effective game. So you don't have to transform yourself into a spurious chatter. Yes. No, absolutely. I think what the research has found is that people who are, um, if you're an extrovert, you're more likely to be noticed and therefore chosen for a leadership position. But it doesn't make you better at leadership. Um, and so I think introverts are just as likely and very possible, very possibly could be even more influential because they listen more, because they're more willing to just kind of, you know, hold back their own opinions and listen to others. So I don't think there's an advantage for either an introvert or extrovert. I think it really is how you behave with others and how you interact with them. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think this is a question coming in from Nicola Foster? Why do you think male CEOs typically perform better if they are new to a company? Uh, do you think they invest less in building referent and expert power? Uh, or do you think this kind of power is valued less when it's displayed by men? So it's a gender dimension from the other side. Mm. I think one of the reasons male CEOs do better when they come in from the outside is partly because they don't have to justify themselves. So, um, if you, the whole thing about gender bias is it's based on our, um, our expectations of what a leader should look like and what a leader should be like. It's the leader prototype that we all have in our heads. And the leader prototype is male because it's based on what we've seen around us. And so if we all have this, not everyone, I mean, you know, when it comes to psychology, you can never say 100% of people are any anything. But the vast majority of us have this expectation that leaders are male and men are suited to leadership. And so when a man comes in as a CEO, it's like, oh, yeah, okay. When a woman comes in as CEO, there's much more, oh, can she do this? Are, are we sure she can do this? What, how do we know she can do this? And so I think that's the difference. It's not that men are better or have an advantage. It's more that women have a disadvantage because of the expectation. Is there a kind of tipping point where when you finally have over 50%, the chief executives in FTSE or vice chancellors or whatever the world is, where in a sense, the change has been affected and that becomes less of the case? Might remain the case for people of diverse backgrounds uh, in terms of culture, but not for women. Do you think that's yeah. so, close even if it's true and you're nodding? Is it coming so close? what they found in organizations is if you have more than 30% women, I think it's 30, 35%, something around there, then um, things like sexual harassment go away. Um, there's less gender bias. So it's not even, you don't even have to reach 50%. You just have to get above 30%. 
Interesting. Uh, is there much fight back by men against this? We read about this all the time. Um, yeah, because, well, society is patriarchal. And when, when, like, if you're in a position of power, why would you give up that power? You know, we, could, we can even see that within an institution. If you look at the people who have the most power in the institution, it doesn't matter if they're male, female, or whatever. If you, they have the most power in the institution, they're the ones least likely to want to completely overhaul the institution because they've benefited from it. So yeah, it's, it's not surprising. It's a natural reaction. So in the end, it's a kind of aggressive fight for power, is it? I mean, in yeah. a way. It is power, enough. yeah. Power yeah. in society. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here's George, George Chartier, who's told us, we asked him to do this, that he's married to an LSE alum. He says alumni, but I'm sure it's an alumna, George, or alumnus. No, I'm married to a bunch of them, I'm sure. And the question is this, the question is this, could imposter syndrome be related to guilt-prone and stereotype be related to shame-prone? So I think he's getting at underlying characteristics here. Guilt-prone, imposter, mm. shame-prone is stereotype. Do you think it works? Possibly. I can see that. I can see that. I don't think it's as simple as that, though, because while you could say maybe there's more guilt under imposter syndrome and more shame under stereotype threat, it's not the only thing. There's a lot of other emotions associated with that. So, yeah, I think you do have a point, but um, I would caution against simplifying too much. Yeah, right. Very good. Thank you. Uh, here's one from Haley. Uh, these are very quick fire. I think it's uh, it's putting you under quite a quite a, a grill. But here we go. That's what it's, I like. <laughs> this is really catches, I'd say, the mood of a lot of people. How, how do you reconcile an imposter system, sy syndrome, which has been caused by a part of your life or personality? This is from Haley Alexander. Being caused by a part of your life personality that you're proud of. You're proud of. So the example may not be her, but it's an example she gives. I love my job. I'm good at my job, but it makes me feel like an imposter as a mother because I feel so good at my job and love it. And I think this is gendered actually, if I may intervene mm. here, but I may be wrong, you'll tell me. The voice in you says, you should want to be at home more with your children than wanting to go to work. I think mm -hmm. this happens a lot. People are guilty about yes. being delighted to be away. Yes. Not that they're away much these days, but theoretically. Yes. So first I wanna clarify, that's not exactly imposter syndrome because imposter syndrome would be if you got an award as a mother, if you got an award as mother of the year, then you would feel like an imposter because you would feel like I don't deserve it because I love my job more. Um, but you didn't get the award. I, I assume you didn't get the award of, as mother of the year. So it's not exactly imposter syndrome. It's actually just pure guilt. And <laughs> okay, which we all struggle with, <laughs> um, but I do think it's gendered guilt. So I'm, I'm the full-time breadwinner in my household and my husband is the full-time parent. So we've reversed roles here. Um, and I, I don't feel guilty. Like I, you know, it's, it's just, I think it's something where we need to manage ourselves and we need to understand that a lot of this guilt is what society forces us to think we should be doing. Um, if, if the children are happy, if the children are healthy, if they're growing up fine, then there's no reason to feel guilty. What and in fact, deep, children it's benefit when, they're, when their parents are happy. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was thinking it's embedded in centuries. This is a very powerful structure. This isn't some recent 
post-war trend. This is the way we've been. So in decades, we're trying to undo assumptions about the woman and motherhood that are exactly. there since we got started. Exactly. Quite a big challenge, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Do schools and universities do enough? This is your Dreyfus. Do schools and universities do enough to ensure their students develop these, these skills? And you're saying schools and universities deliberately. Uh, so both. And if not, why not? I, so I, I, it's hard for me to say because I, I was invited to my daughter's secondary school. And at the time she was going to an all girls school. So it was an all girls secondary school. I was invited there to do my talk and I did my talk about power and influence, gender bias, um, nonverbal communication. And it didn't land. Like, I think they were too young. I think they really didn't get it. I think when I do this talk at universities, they get it. They're like, yes, I struggle with this. Thank you. I need this. So I feel like you need a certain amount of life experience before you understand the need for some of these skills. Um, when you're too young, it's kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I'm just trying to get my homework done and get out of school. Very interesting. From Kiara Robinson. Kiara, I'm sure you won't mind me reading this out. Uh, I'm a queer woman who found that I was able to progress to senior positions relatively faster than my peers and even seniors. And here's the, the bit. I found my otherness meant I didn't have to fit into standard work expectations. Uh, and this became one of my assets and maybe even a likability. So maybe this is about, you know, kind of attractive personal qualities to be able to turn this. But the question is, do you think given constantly changing landscapes in the workplace, sometimes the traits of otherness can actually be harnessed, can actually be harnessed to your advantage to build your power in the workplace? Mm -hmm. Yes, no, absolutely. I think when, um, so there's, there's a theory called optimal distinctiveness theory, where it argues that humans want to belong to a group but they also want to be unique and different. And if you can find that optimal distinctiveness point where you're part of the group, but you're still distinct, then that can be an advantage. And so I think, yes, the otherness can help as long as it's not too far other. The other thing I would hypothesize is that you probably exhibit a certain amount of androgyny. And so androgyny meaning not too female and not too male. Um, and there is some research on androgyny and leadership where androgynous people, and, and so when they talk about androgyny and leadership, they're talking about a balance between being um, caring and, and um, concerned about people with being assertive and the kind of, you know, that, that type of more masculine type of leadership. So androgyny is the, a combination of the both. And what they found is androgynous leaders um, are more successful. So I think there is a benefit to being able to walk that balance. Good, thank you. Question from Edward Bloom coming through. There's a lot of Q&A. Um, apologies to those of you who don't get the question in, even though Constance answering them really, really succinctly and well, we have an awful lot, as you imagine, with so many people on the, on, 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 on the talk. But here's one from Edward Bloom. In brief, what would you say is the most powerful concept, tool or action one can take possibly today, to make one's voice heard. 
I might want to repeat it to give you a chance to form it. One, Edward's after one thing that could do best to make my voice heard. And the thing could be concept tool or action. You know, it's going to depend on who you are. It really depends on what it is you need to work on. Some people need to work on their nonverbal communication. Some people need to work on their ability to listen. Some people need to work on their, um, their relationships at work. It's, it's going to vary so much depending on who you are. So I would say the one thing is self-awareness. Self-awareness, self-awareness. There, take that, take that away. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I thought that was a tricky one. Martin Eliso, how can an individual regain the perception of having power and influence after relative failure. I'm putting the word relative in there, and this may not be Marta, of course, but it's a general point. We all come across several job applications that are rejected uh -huh. and so on. Taking, taking these, these hits, how can uh -huh. we regain this perception yeah. of power? Um, so I have experienced failure. I, I was laid off. I, I'd like to say laid off. I was actually fired from a job. Um, many years ago when I was a personal assistant. I, I don't make a very good personal assistant. I have too much of, you know, I like to think for myself. But the way I recovered was um, slowly. So you have to have patience with yourself. It, sometimes it can take years to recover. But it's, you just keep going. You don't like, you don't stop and wallow in it. You know, you just keep going. So what I did after I got fired was I went backpacking through Europe for a month. And that was great because that was something I had always wanted to do. And then I went back to Hong Kong where I was living at the time and heard about this other job and I applied for it and I got the job and I started a new career. And, but it still took me years to get over that. And only now, many years later, can I look back on it and see, actually, the best thing about that was it allowed me to backpack through Europe. But so it's, it's just be, be kind to yourself and be patient. Were you aware of it at the time? Aware of what? Of the need to rebuild yourself in this way or was it just a lucky accident? It, uh, I think I, I was completely crushed. I was really crushed. But by the time I finished backpacking through Europe, I was like, wow, I would never have been able to do this if I hadn't been fired. You knew about it. Yeah. Laura Mulaney says, apart from asking for the slides, do you think that, which is a great thing to ask for, Laura, do you think that sharing challenges you face with managers or colleagues, such as mental or physical health issues, impedes your ability to influence at work? A lot of people might think that, though few people might ask it. I'm going to keep my head down. Mm. Responsibility stuff won't work for me in my world. So I think it's important to, it's important for other people to see you as human. But you also have to, you have to be careful about who you reveal things to. So for, for example, if you're leading a team, you need to be there for the team. The team has to have confidence in you as their leader. So it's fine for them to see you as human and to see certain weaknesses, but those shouldn't be the weaknesses that make them question whether or not you're able to lead them. Um, if there, you know, there are other people you can talk to, there are people outside of work. So I would say, yes, I'm, I don't hesitate to reveal 
personal things to let people know who I am, but I'm always careful to make sure that it doesn't get in the way of them having confidence in me being able to do my job. Yeah, very. Erin Barton again. Erin, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to summarize this. But has the pandemic, pandemic, and Zoom changed now how we build this thing up? We don't see the full person anymore. You were talking earlier to me about how you had to change it a bit in your book about handshakes. Some of this stuff is here to stay. Some of this stuff. Asking you to guess about which elements of how we engage in this confidence building uh, process uh, in the internet age, in the, in the age of Zoom, in the age of remote meetings. Will it change things, do you think? I don't think it's going to change things as much as we think. So it's the, the basic principles still apply. There are a couple of things that are different. So first of all, you have to think more about lighting and you also have to think more about sound quality, which are things we don't normally think about. But aside from that, you know, when you have a meeting in person, after the meeting, you'll hang out with people, you'll chat with them, you make connections through those casual conversations. We still need that. So, but what we have to do on Zoom is maybe you, maybe you contact them separately. Maybe you have a chat with them separately. So you need to actually more actively reach out. But the principles, the basic principles still apply. You still need those casual conversations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, PM, Paymana Assad has got a hard question. I'm going, to, I'm going to read it out because I think we could have half dealt with it. The more critical, but it's important to do it. The more critical one is the less power one has. Those who are most powerful, uh, sorry, I've, I've, it's, it's disappeared on me. I'm going to just take a second to try and get it back. Maybe I'll miss it and come back to it in a minute because the chat fiddles with me. I'll ask one from Colette Smith, University of the West Indies, uh, location in Jamaica. As we move further towards hybrid organizations, you know, face to face, it's linked to what we're saying, but the question is different. How do you see this influencing the democratization of power and authority in widely dispersed theme, in widely dispersed teams? So the research that they've done on dispersed teams is that um, being dispersed. So if you have like two people here, three people there, that can cause imbalances. If everyone is equally dispersed, then it's, you don't have that kind of imbalance. So everyone is equally, you know, separated from each other. If you're running these dispersed teams, you need to spend extra time. You need to spend more time helping people get to know each other as people, as human beings. You need to help them get to know each other um, in terms of their expertise, like who knows what, who has what background. And you need to um, be clear on what are the norms of behavior. Like how often do we contact each other and how, how frequently, how quickly do we reply, those sorts of things. So I don't think I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. We just need to think more, more carefully about it. One thing I have found, like what I was saying earlier at the beginning of this, is that being online does make things more democratic in certain ways, such as the Q&A function, people upvote questions. So the more popular questions get asked. The, the fact that by doing this online, we can have a lot more people attending than we would normally, like normally an LSE like the biggest auditorium we have is like 300 people or 400 people. Um, but here we had more than 500 attending. So there are certain things. And the other thing, so when you're in person, there's something about taking up space. 
The more dominant people take up more space. Well, on Zoom, we've all got the same size box. So there, there are things that make being online a bit more democratic. Very interesting, indeed. So some of them may need to be sustained, interestingly, from your mm-hmm. point of view. Yeah. And fight to prevent a return, which is too bland and too easy to the status quo. Here's the one I lost from Pam Anna. Sorry about that. And it's a tough one. I'm going to read it out. Mm-hmm. The more critical one is the less power one has. Those who are most powerful in most industries and areas are white. And so it's very hard when biases come in the way for minorities to try and influence that power. What's the solution there, says Paymania? It's an important question. This is a societal question. This is, I mean, I think, Honestly, I have a lot of hope in the younger generation because I'm looking at my teenagers and I'm looking at their friends and the the focus on social justice is so strong in that, at least the, the people that I'm seeing from that generation, that it gives me a lot of hope. Um, and I think the assumption that if you're male and white and in charge of a company, you don't care about social justice is wrong. I think, I think the solution is to stop making it us versus them. And I say this about gender as well, because these are societal issues and the more we can fix them, the more everyone will benefit. If we make it about us versus them, then it becomes, then it becomes a fight. And in a fight, you know, everybody loses. So I, I mean, the, there's no good solution, but I think the attitude is one of the things we need to change. Thank you very much, Constance. We're, we're, we're amazingly, we've got only a few minutes left, but we keep running through them. Uh, tremendous range of questions, folks. Thank you so much. And here's one from Melanie, who's an LSE alumna. Here's the question. How can you regain power and influence if you've made a mistake that could have possibly affected the trust of the people around you? whether that'd be team members or your boss. Now, you don't need to say it because I'll say we all make mistakes. It's not about the mistake. It's how we manage the mistake. How do you go about doing that? Mm. Yeah. I think it's helping them, making it clear to them that you know you made a mistake. This is one of the things. So for me, having been in the boss position of someone who made a mistake, if they don't admit to me that they made a mistake, I get doubly worried. I'm like, wait, if they, if they can't even admit that they made a mistake, then there's a bigger problem here. So I think it's making that admission and having a conversation with them, you know, maybe a one-to-one conversation with your boss about this is what happened. This is why I made the mistake. And this is why it won't happen again. So just showing them that you're putting things in place to make sure it won't happen again. I think that, and then over time, the trust will rebuild, but I think that is a good first step. Here's one from, thank you, Izile Kokobas. There are some external negative attitudes about cultural diversity that we cannot interfere with change in a positive way. So they're there. We're a bit stuck. How do we fight them in our inner voice? That was her precise, Izele's question. And what do you suggest for an individual? Who, who, how could they solve this with their inner voice? How does the inner voice fight back against that kind of deeper problem that is encountered mm. daily? the negative attitude externally about cultural diversity. Yeah, so I'm I'm taking this to mean that if, 
So this is this is something when I when I do some lecturing for the um, United Nations, I, I I deal with a lot of people who are dealing with very culturally diverse teams, and sometimes what they hear from their team members are, "I can't change because that's that's my culture. That that's just the way you know." Um, and I, I take it to mean this is this is what you're talking about. The way to deal with that is you break it down into behavior, because it's not. Culture is simply a set of behaviors and expectations when you break it down to its, its smallest pieces. Um, and if it, it's a set of behaviors and attitudes and expectations. And if you can simply identify the specific things, so this comes down to how do you give people feedback, is you don't say to them, oh, why are you so negative all the time? You actually wait for a point when they do something. So for example, you've just had a meeting and they shoot down someone else's idea before the other person has had a chance to finish. After the meeting, you say, hey, when you did that, it made it appear like you're very negative because you shot down their idea. Maybe next time you could give them a chance to speak. So this is, this is the way you do it, is you break it down one piece at a time rather than trying to attack the whole thing. Well, I think... I think we've got one more. We've got one more consonant. And it's from, I think it's from Mima uh, Osmani, who's University of Kent. And I think a lot of students might be thinking this. I'm sure some of the hundreds here are students. Uh, what advice would you give to students that struggle with past traumas leading to lower self-esteem and lower school performance? Do you think grades should be the sole factor to define how smart or influential an individual is? Now, I think I not, might know the answer to the second one. Uh, and it's part of the first one, but it's a lot of us feel this, you know, something's happened in the past. It's dogging us, but we're not, we're not yet on our way as it were. Yeah. So there's two things here. One is past trauma is you need to get some help to deal with it. It's um, I have worked with therapists in the past uh, and it's very, very helpful to talk to someone you trust to kind of work these things out, but also don't let, don't let these things define you because we are bigger than that. So this is the thing when you're dealing with negative events or negative emotions is you are bigger than that. And if you just see it as one part of you. So um, one of a therapist friend of mine actually suggested that we think of ourselves as like a kindergarten teacher and you've got uh, all the different parts of yourself are like the little children. And so there's the part of you that was traumatized, or there's the part of you that gets really angry at certain things, or there's the part of you that's um, a bit obsessive compulsive, you know, and when that part of you acts up, you don't push them away, you, you kind of hug them and you say, okay, okay, it's okay, I know you're still here, yep, that's fine. And then after a while, it kind of goes away. But it's part of you and you have to accept it as part of you, but you accept it as one part of you and not the whole part of you. Um, and the thing about grades, oh man, you know, this is, this is part of society and this is part of education that the older I get, the more I really don't like it, that we get defined by our performance in school. Um, and I think that there's nothing we can do, like the system isn't going to change. But I think what you can do is try to put it in perspective and just realize this is just one part of your life and over life you will have a lot of other challenges and successes. Consul, I'm going to ask you to pick up your book, which I know you have beside you, and to just let everybody yep. see it. So this is 
making your voice heard. That's me making your book seen. There it is. <laughs> if bookshops were open, folks, you could rush out and buy it on Thursday. But you can, I assume, you can, I assume, get it via the internet. So there you are. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of people to thank. That was a tremendous session. We're going to finish now. We First of all, I mean, the audience, thank you very much. Hundreds of you with and then really a lot of questions. So well done for engaging. It tells us you're engaging because we can't see you. It's very difficult for us. And so it's marvelous to see the questions. It's a form of, it's a form of support. And we have a support too from, from Claire, from your department, I think, Claire Roper, yep. fabulous, really well organized. And the events team at LSE, good old events team, they used to be in charge of making sure none of you misbehaved and also making sure you sat in the right place. Now they're making sure all of this works, that, uh, that you can get your voice heard effectively insofar as we can manage it within the time allowed. That's Alice, John, Nicholas and Wilson. Thank you very much. But of course, mainly, Constant, thank you so much. That is by far the most questions I have ever asked in a session, much less answered. And I can tell you how disconcerting it is to have an accurate, clear and short answer. I normally expect the person to whom I've asked a question to go on and on for about 10 minutes while I daydream, do emails, make calls. But no, no, not in this case. So Constant Locke, Thank you so much and good luck with the book. And that's it from us, folks. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, Connor. Thank you, everyone, for coming.